Welcome to the FCC Podcast. Hear all the stories, worship, and teaching from Sunday service. Want to connect with us or learn more about FCC? Visit us at FCCETown.com. Until I was 17 years old, the only phone in our house was the one in the kitchen that was attached to the wall, had a rotary dial on it, and a very short cord which meant that any conversation that you wanted to have on that phone, especially as a 17-year-old, was going to happen in earshot and eyeline of everybody in the house. And so at 17, I had a conversation with my parents, and we had a little presentation that I had worked up to ask them if maybe we could put a phone in my room. They agreed to let me do that with a little bit of pushback. And a little bit of pushback was that they were concern that having a phone in my room was going to be a disturbance and a distraction to me. They were concerned that having a phone in my room might lead to some late night conversations that didn't need to happen and kind of break into my sleep patterns that needed to be in in good places. But I, I wasn't really worried about any of that. I didn't have any great desire to be on the phone for a long period of time. I just wanted a place where I could have the freedom to talk to my friends and make plans with my friends without having to stand in the middle of everything. Times have changed. Now we live in a culture and we live in a society where this is the image of things, okay? Everywhere we go, everyone is on their phone, looking at their phone, and this image is sometimes how we think about it. We decide that this, this problem that exists is a problem that exists for kids, that a problem that exists for students, that they're the ones that are always on their phones, and they're the ones that have their face buried in their phones. <laughs> but let's be honest, it is not just them at all. In fact, I read an article this week that um, identified the phone as the new cigarette of life, that it is the thing that we are addicted to and tend to pick up all the time, and, and in, in idle moments, it's the phone that we will pick up to fill the time, and it's not generational, and it's not connected to a certain age group or a, a certain kind of person. We all seem to struggle with having this phone that we can't put down. Now the idea of kind of getting some friends together to hang out for a while means that, yes, you're going to have physical friends that, that are there and, and, and present with you, but you're also going to make sure that your phones are available in case there's some digital friends that you want to be connected with as well. And so we end up looking like this. We're, we're next to each other, we're near each other, but we're still on our phone. And we just can't imagine it any other way. My parents were concerned that I was going to be distracted by having a phone in my room and yet this is where we are now. And pay attention to the next time that you're just uh, having a gathering of, of people or you're maybe having folks over to, to watch the game and look at how quickly everybody pulls their phone out to have their phone available too. It ends up looking like this. And we just can't even seem to get together anymore without pulling our, our phone out. And it doesn't matter how, how big the group is. It doesn't matter what age it is. I mean, it can be two, a, a couple that are sitting on the couch. They're sitting next to each other for a great moment, an evening together, and yet they've got their phones out. Or your family sits down for, for dinner, and it looks like this. Because you've got your phones out. We have a problem. And those pictures bother us on a couple of different levels. 
One of the levels is that, that we recognize this is our society. And we recognize that this is our culture. And we recognize that, that this is how things are when we look around the room, whatever the room is. The other level that it bothers us is that, um, that you're this person. And you're sitting next to somebody or down the row from somebody who's brought this up to you before. And now you know that when you leave here, they're going to bring it up again. And you're kind of mad at me right now. But I'm guilty of it too. My phone's out all the time. And it's available to me all the time. I've got great reasons for it. And I'm ready to kind of hand out those reasons to anybody who wants to ask. And I'm, I'm ready to tell people that I, I need to have my phone out because, I mean, somebody may need to get in touch with me. Okay? And I need to be available to people, so I need to have my phone out. Or I need to know kind of what's going on in the world because that's important that I kind of know what's happening and, and know how that connects to what we're doing as, as a church. I'll throw church into it. Okay? It's really important that I have my phone out. Or I, it's been a really long day, and I deserve to play this game right now. Because okay? this is how I relax. Just let me cool down for a moment. Just leave me alone so I can, can do that. Or I can tell people that I'm reading my Bible, that that's why I have my phone out. That's why my face is buried in my phone. My Bible app isn't even up, but I'll tell them that I'm reading my Bible because that'll, that'll tell them. That'll get them off my back. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. We got reasons in our pocket ready to go at any moment. But it doesn't take away from the fact that this addiction thing that we've got with our phones, it, it is disconnecting us from each other. That's not to say that your, your phone is a bad thing and you need to throw your phone out. There, there's, there's value in having that phone and, and, and phones have proven that they can be lifesavers. However, they also contribute to the loss of connection and the loss of community. And we want community. I don't know if you were watching your TV screen yesterday and maybe flip past a few football games, but the fact that we saw stadiums of people filled up all over the country yesterday. The fact that right here in our own community, the grocery stores are packed, and the restaurants are packed, and the stores are packed. It's, it's just an, a calling to us that in this era and in this season that we are in right now, there are people who are clamoring for community. And it's not surprising. Because this sense of community and this want for community, it is wired into our DNA. We want to be with other people. God created us that way. He, he created us at the very beginning. He created man, and then he realized very quickly that man shouldn't be alone, and so he created woman, and they were in community together. And as he started the church, as he, he, he created the church, he knew that community would matter there too. Even before the church got started, he had the 12. It was the 12 apostles of Jesus, and they were they were brought together from all different walks of life and, and they were grouped that, that wouldn't naturally come together but Jesus brought them together and Jesus taught them to be a group because when Jesus was gone, they leaned into each other and they helped each other in the beginning days of the church and the church saw that and the church 
wanted to replicate that, what they saw from the 12, and so they started to meet together in each other's homes, and they spent time at each other's place, and they had breakfast and lunch and dinner with each other in undistracted times of connection. That's what the church looked like there in the first century there in Jerusalem. Just everybody kind of not only spending time together in the temple courts, but, but spending time together in each other's homes. But over time, as the centuries have rolled by, our understanding and our interpretation of what church is has veered away from all of that. Gilbert Belazikian, who is a retired professor of biblical studies at Wheaton College near Chicago, a couple of decades ago, he recognized this disconnect problem that was taking place. And he wrote these words. He said, recently I asked a class of 50 junior and senior college students, all of them raised in church-going families, to write a one-sentence definition of the church. Their answers varied from people who are saved and places of worship to opportunity to put on a Sunday disguise and sanctified gossip centers. That's very encouraging. Not a single student described the church in terms of community or oneness. And it occurred to me that such young people have been nurtured in the church without ever understanding the nature of their experience. The church was for them a habit without definition. They had been trained to play church or to do church instead of being the church. And once again, the church had become just about this moment that we're in right now only. Church had become about one hour that we spend on Sunday and we check the box and we move on with the rest of our week. And that is such a long way away from the connectivity and the community that existed in the first church. So let's go back and take a look at that. If, you, if you've got your Bible with you, if you've got a phone or a tablet that's got a Bible app on it, um, open to Acts chapter 2. Okay, we're just going to go back to Acts chapter 2 again. And as the author of Acts sat down, his name was Luke, as he sat down to kind of write and describe what the church was like and kind of define that church he didn't talk about the volume of their singing in the temple courts. He didn't talk about the, the numbers of attendants that showed up as a collective unit in the, the temple courts every day. Luke very descriptively described the church, how they functioned, who they were, what they cared about, what mattered to them in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And he gives us this very concise picture of the church in year one. And in verse 46, he describes what it's like to participate in the church. And in fact, Luke wasn't even a participant in the church in Jerusalem in year one. Luke doesn't come onto the scene until much later. But there were people who were part of that church who told him about it and described it to him. And as they described it to him, he passed it on to us. And here's the words that he said. In describing the church, he said, they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. There was a community there. 
This was not a club. This was not a business. This was not an organization. This was a community of people. And they loved coming together. We started meeting back with our life group a a couple of weeks ago. And I had so missed our times of of meeting together. Now, in our life group, we start at 6 o'clock. That's what it says in all the literature about our life group. Um, But the people who come to our group know that it doesn't actually start until about 6.15 because nobody shows up on time. And so the the actual starting time ends up being like 6.15. 6.15 to 7 o'clock is hangout time. It's the time where conversations just kind of start all over the place. It's the time where we get together and we eat. And during all of that time, you know what I I noticed this week? I was paying attention to it this week. During all of that time, when all those conversations are happening, all those smiles are happening, all the laughter is happening, all the catch-up is taking place, not a single phone came out. And it may seem like that that time from 6.15 to 7 o'clock is just opener time. It's just filler time. It's just kind of time wasting until we get to the study portion that we're there to do. But I would argue that the smiles and the laughter and the five different conversations that are happening upstairs and downstairs and out by the fire and out in the driveway are in some sense the, the most church thing that we do all week long because we are a community. It's actually the modern day picture of what we read about here in Acts chapter two, verses 46 and 47. At our life group this week, when we broke bread, it was hot dogs. Hot dogs on the grill was our breaking bread moment for the week, and we did it with glad and sincere hearts and enjoyed the favor of all the people. That's the church. And that's following. Because one of the reasons that we have continued to raise up the value of life groups over the last month or so is not just so we could see more people join life groups, although that's happened. And the reason that we've raised the value is not just so we could find more hosts and more leaders, although that's happened. It wasn't just so we could have new life groups that would get started, although that's happened. The reason that we raised the value up so high is because it's a push for relationships. It's a push for spiritually significant relationships that we all need in this life as we're following Jesus. Because Jesus had those relationships. Jesus gathered 12 guys around him. And he had a purpose for that. It wasn't just about the future, it was about the present. He brought the 12 around him because he needed those relationships in his life. And the 12 saw that in one another and they saw that in him and when Jesus left, the 12 had relationship with each other in that life of beginning the church and the church saw that in them in Jerusalem and so they started meeting together in each other's homes and forming these small communities that were happening all over town. Because those communities are communities that go beyond this gathering. They go beyond the one hour on Sunday. And they are more intimate than this gathering. And they are more face-to-face than this gathering. They are safer than this gathering. So why do these groups matter so much? Well, right now, in the culture that we're in, in the climate that we are in, 
these Acts 2 style groups that we call life groups around here at First Christian are gathering together because they infuse very important values into your life as you are seeking to follow Jesus. And the first thing that, that, that gets infused into our life in our communities is right out of Acts chapter 2. We, we just read it. And I've already used the word a couple of times uh, in describing the church and describing life groups. And that word is fellowship. A fellowship is kind of an old-time churchy word. For those of us who have a history in the church, when we see that word fellowship, we think about a fellowship hall, okay? And for some of us, we remember the fellowship hall as being in the basement of the church because that's where fellowship halls are supposed to be. They're somewhere near the kitchen because usually in a fellowship hall, you had a fellowship meal, so you gotta be near some place to make all the food. And we remember maybe revivals that took place in that church long ago, and, and after one of the revival nights, or maybe every one of the revival nights, you would get together and you would have everyone have this big potluck where all of the different casseroles in the world would come together. And it would be a fellowship meal that happened in the fellowship hall. And the greatest thing about fellowship meals and the casseroles that are there is that it is all about butter, milk, cheese, sugar, and salt, and all the things that we have taken out of food were part of fellowship meals. And it happened in the fellowship hall. And it may seem like an old time kind of word, but all of those feelings that come flooding back when we think about that fellowship is still part of what fellowship is. But it's deeper than that. If you're a, a fan of J.R.R. Tolkien, or you like the movies that are the Lord of the Rings movies, you probably know that the first book and the first movie share the same name. It's called The Fellowship of the Ring. The reason that it's called The Fellowship of the Ring, if that sounds like a weird title, is because it's all about the gathering of this group of people who would be known as The Fellowship of the Ring. There were eight of them, nine if you can't Gandalf the wizard. There they are. They were the fellowship. That was their title. And they were on a mission together. And because they were the fellowship of the ring on a mission together, that, that title of fellowship meant that it, there was a commitment that they had to one another. They knew that they had each other's backs and that they knew that, that, that each other were pulling for each other and that they were committed to one another, they were protecting one another all along the way on their quest and their mission together. And part of the sense that we have of community within our groups when we gather together in those communities that goes beyond this place and beyond this moment and beyond checking a box is this sense of fellowship that corresponds to these communities and these groups that we're part of. And those communities have always had food a part of them. It goes all the way back to Acts chapter two. It's biblical. But they've also had this sense of commitment and connection and protection all along the way. And that sense of fellowship, that sense of commitment is something that you don't find when life is spent just staring into your phone. 
And that sense of fellowship is not something that you find when you are in isolation from one another. But fellowship is part of our communities when we come together. But then so is trust. Trust ends up being something that is part of our communities that we have, part of our groups as they come together. It's another value that's kind of hard to come by in our current culture and climate. There's an old adage that says that trust is not granted. Trust is earned. My guess is that whoever came up with that quote had been burned somewhere in their life. Because I think as kids, we give out trust freely. When we're little, we, we don't know any better but to trust everybody. Everybody's telling us the, the, the right thing. Everybody's telling us the truth, and so we can trust them. And then it just takes a few experiences to get to the point where you decide, nope, I'm hanging on to trust. You're going to have to earn it from me. Bob Chapman, who wrote a book called Everybody Matters, says that the opposite is, is actually true, that when it comes to trust, we actually are always giving trust away. It's just that we're deciding who to give the trust to, and we're deciding when we're going to give the trust out. But trust is always given. The, the part that is more stagnant, the part that seems to be more naturally a part of who we are is distrust. And yet he says that distrust breeds some difficult things in life. That distrust breeds suspicion and paranoia. That distrust breeds micromanaging and second guessing. That distrust breeds rules and sign-offs and bureaucracy. That distrust breeds apprehension and distrust breeds skepticism an assumption. And I would say that we live in a society that's doing a pretty good job of living with distrust in our life. These kinds of things do come pretty naturally to us. But it's in those communities that we can build those fellowships that exist that trust is built for followers of Jesus. Because left alone, I mean, even in the church, in isolation, we will spin a conspiracy theory. And in isolation, we can easily begin to believe that the whole world is against us. But in a community, we are challenged to think differently. In a community, we, we are kind of challenged to warm to the idea of disagreement, even open our hearts to new ideas and new insights. I love our, our life group times that we have because of the discussions that take place and the discussions and questions that come up. It, it's in those communities, far different than any other place, where, where it's a safe place to have those discussions. It's a safe place to ask some questions. And even in those moments, I, I may not agree with the thoughts that are being brought up, but I'm, I'm being forced to look at it in a little different way or look at it from a little different angle and, and trust the people who are in my community to give me the space and the grace 
to think it all the way through without feeling like relationships or respect are on the line. Those are community atmospheres that are really hard to come by right now. But they are part of the design that God made and God created for the church. One last part of this community that we read about in Acts chapter two and that we are trying to emulate right here at First Christian. Fellowship, for sure, we see that in Acts chapter two. There's also trust that is shown and on display in the book of Acts, and specifically in Acts chapter four, which we're gonna get to a little later in the series, but if you wanna look at it, you're welcome to do that. But the last component is one that shows up over and over and over again, from house to house to house, from group to group to group, And that value that is raised up in those communities is care. It it was during a a prayer time that happened in one of those home groups there in Jerusalem that we see this this care on display. And it, it shows up in a moment that is actually kind of an emotional moment and also a little bit of a funny moment that takes place in Scripture. It's in Acts chapter 12, and just to kind of set the scene of all the things that are taking place there, Peter um, is in prison. Not only is Peter in prison, Peter has been sentenced to death, and his home group has gathered to pray for him. They've gathered to, to pray that God would do a miracle, that somehow he would, Peter would be freed, that somehow, at the very least, maybe his sentence would be lessened from execution. And while they're praying for Peter, the Spirit shows up and, and, and leads Peter out of his prison cell and out of the prison and out into the yard outside of the prison without anybody noticing. Peter at first thinks it's a dream and then he realizes that it's real and suddenly he's standing outside of the prison, a freed man, and that's where we're, we're picking up the text and it says this, When this had dawned on him that he was free, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. He went to the place that he knew people would be praying for him. He went to the home that I I believe was, was his community where he knew there were people there who were caring about him and people there who were praying for him. And what we're told in the text is that Peter went to that house and he went to the door and he started knocking on the door. And while everybody's still praying, there's a girl that gets up and she goes to the door and she asks who's at the door and she hears Peter's voice. And in a moment of panic, because Peter's come home and Peter's been freed from prison, she forgets to unlock the door. And she runs back to the group that's gathered way back in the inner part of the house and they're still all gathered together and they're all praying and she interrupts the prayer and she's like, Peter's outside. And they think she's crazy. They call her insane. They tell her that she's hearing things that it's not possible at all that Peter's outside at the door. She finally is trying her very best to convince them that she's not lying, that she didn't imagine it, that Peter's really there. And we pick the text up again and it says this, but Peter kept on knocking. Hello? 
And when they opened the door and they saw him, they were astonished. Side comment. Is this not our kind of praying? Where we get together and we pray for God to do a miracle. We pray for God to do something that will not be easily explained. And when God says yes to our prayer, and when God does a miracle and God does something that is not easily explained, we're astonished that he did it. God is still at work in doing miraculous things. And he is at work at building this sense of care in communities that pray together and gather together to pray for the people who are in those communities. When Peter was released from prison, the first place that he thought to go was to his group. To his group that he knew would be caring for him, that he knew would be praying for him. Our life group communities provide us with care and connection. I am uh, saddened, which is like the biggest understatement that I could come up with. But I'm saddened by the people that feel disconnected from us over the past 18 months. And, and some of those people have become disconnected because they feel like we didn't care enough. And they didn't feel a sense of care. And that hurts. And it's sad and it's painful. But I'm also reminded that a vast majority of those who have felt disconnected along the way were not connected to these communities that we've talked about today. When it came to church, they got this part down. But this was it. And at the end of the day, there was a lack of care. They were missing the community and the connection that we so desperately need in following Jesus. Not just one hour on Sunday, not just the moment where the, the sense of community that we get in this, and I love worshiping together with you, but the sense of community that we get here is staring at the back of the head of the person that's sitting in front of you. We need community that infuses fellowship and trust and care into our life. We need that. Jesus needed it. It's why he gathered the 12 around him. The 12 needed it as Jesus left and they leaned into each other. 
The first century church needed it as they gathered in one another's homes and they broke bread together and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And as his followers, we need that community too. Maybe we need it just to pull our heads up out of our phones. Or maybe initially we need it just because it's a follow thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the church. We thank you not just for this time that we come together right now, although we love this time. But we thank you for the time that we get to spend with you throughout this week that we can come to you at any moment. And God, we thank you for your challenge to us, your encouragement to us, your push to us to be in community with one another to find fellowship and trust and care that we so desperately need, that you knew we would need. God, we thank you for the model of it that we see in Jesus, and we would ask that you would spur our hearts on, even this week, to follow that lead from Jesus, follow that lead from the 12, follow that lead from the first century church, that we would do what, what it takes to find fellowship and trust and care in these communities where spiritually significant relationships take place. And we thank you so much for the model of Jesus and it's in his name that we pray, amen. I'm gonna ask that you would stand with me this morning. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, today can be a day that you say yes to him, yes to his forgiveness and his grace, Yes to, to his leadership for your life. Yes to the promise of eternity that Jesus offers us. We've watched today as one has said, I, I wanna turn my life over to Jesus and I wanna do that and show that as Jesus called for us to do through baptism. And maybe today needs to be that day for you where you say yes to Jesus and you're baptized in his name or maybe this is a day where you've, you've done that but it's time to, to join in with a church that's leaning into Jesus. If you have a decision to make in those directions this morning or maybe just some questions about it, we have folks who will be down front here to talk with you and pray with you. And we encourage you to, to make that decision today or ask those questions today. But for the rest of us, this is a time when we get to join together and worship and praise and sing lifting up the name of our Lord and our Savior, of our King, and praising him for all that he has done and all the blessing that he continues to pour out on our life. May we spend this time in worship.